0: Welcome to The Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to The Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. And today we're gonna go in deep with Martina Luchengo. Martina is a partner at Costa Noa Venture Capital. Uh, she's also a partner at uh, the Silicon Valley Product Group, and she has had a phenomenal career working in and around product marketing for some of the most iconic brands uh, of our lifetime in technology. Uh, Martina, thank you for joining me today.
1: Matt, it's always so much fun to talk with you. <laughs>
0: So Martina I would love to start with a little bit of your career story because your career story has had some just fascinating things in it. Um I don't know what you did before Microsoft so if you want to like do a quick hit of a couple things before Microsoft but then you were on the Microsoft Office team
1: uh running yeah, program, Well right? but I I will claim like, there's a big caveat here is I don't think I could have designed my career path. And the job that I had before Microsoft that let me get the Microsoft job is actually an internship for a consumer company, a consumer chocolate and coffee company in Europe. Uh, you know, the chocolate bars, the cho- the milk of chocolate bars the purple ones, purple cow or Toblerone. Toblerone that was that. Yeah, one of those. So, okay. Yeah, it was it was the best job, by the way, because we right. got to sample all the chocolate products. But So
0: obviously the transition from that to Microsoft Word makes sense. So
1: here's what was so interesting is I developed a a new product for East, the wall had just come down and they were trying to get more product into Eastern Germany and we developed.
0: Well, by the way, just for those of our founders who, you know, are a little younger (laughs) and Martina says the wall had just come down. She's talking about the Berlin Wall. The
1: Berlin Wall, okay. so
0: now we're in 1991.
1: Thank you, Aging myself. Yeah, Yeah, so this is, yeah, 1991. And we were trying to get product into this new market, which was the former Eastern Germany. And so we built a specific display product for the former Eastern German market. And that made my resume totally stand out. Totally
0: unique, yeah.
1: Totally unique in the pile of people that were applying to Microsoft. And so that internship for sure is what got me the interview, the very first screening interview at Microsoft. And that's all everyone ever wanted to talk to me about. So I know it had a huge impact on my, on me being interesting to Microsoft. So thank you to Craft Germany.
0: There you go. Yes. The development of your brand. Yes. (laughs) Um, So Microsoft, um, what were your roles? How long were you there?
1: I was there for just shy of three years, and I started as a product manager on the Microsoft Word team and eventually moved over to the Microsoft Office team, as did most of us, because Office just became the epicenter of all things that desktop productivity apps were doing.
0: Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, the the metaphor of Microsoft and and what it did with Office, I hear so many times from founders who say things like, well, I've already got everybody buying X, and now I'm just going to make them buy you know, Y and Z, and I don't even care if they use them, eventually they'll use them. Um, that is, Is that strategy one that's kind of a tried and true?
1: There was a lot of really, really smart stuff done in the, the early days. And I would say the smartest initial thinking wasn't just, hey, we're going to ride on the coattails of a product that has high penetration and just load it up, which is, I think, what a lot of people mistake it for. What they really did, first and foremost, was they worked on the product to make sure that the easiest to use product in the portfolio, which was Word, was that same interface was then rolled out to the harder to use products that were viewed as specialist products. So Excel, which was an analyst tool, and PowerPoint, which was presentation graphics, was truly no one knew how to do that. Like, wait, where do I start? What do I right. do? You know, that
0: was stuff you used to say. I started my career in management consulting. You sent that to another department to That's
1: go. That's right. Exactly. News, right? Send it to a bunch of designer specialists that knew what they were doing. And so the real insight there wasn't just how do we get more share of wallet with bundling our products? Which, by the way, Microsoft Office existed as a product bundle where it was literally just those products bundled together. It didn't sell very well or sold fine, but it was literally just if I'd already decided I wanted both, I could get a better price. But this was doing the product integration work and then creating a market position, which was everyone, it was a recession. Everyone's trying to do more with less with their office workers. How might you do that? Will you just give them a bigger tool set for just an incremental amount of cost and look at all the things that we can't even imagine what they might do? But if they know how to use one, they know how to use them all. And that was the real thing that made office really take off because suddenly people could envision doing work a different way that they hadn't thought possible before. And it was a bundle and they created great licensing and they did all this other fantastic stuff on top of it. But it started first with thinking through what do we need to do in the product so that what we envision is adoptable and possible and that we can own a a market position.
0: So when uh, uh, when you think about the dominance that Microsoft had in productivity apps and then throw Outlook onto the mix and Exchange onto the mix, and you look at the world today, and I assume you and Costanoa use Gmail and G Suite, um, and you know you're able to open Excel files and Word files like everybody, but you've kind of, you know shifted. Microsoft still has you know healthy market share. What did Google get right in order to wedge themselves into that world of Microsoft domination? And is there anything Microsoft could have done differently? to either prevent that or slow that?
1: I think the two things that Google did exceptionally right was one, they focused on taking advantage of the cloud and collaboration, which was something that was distinctly different. Like if you, if I'm working on anything with anyone, I'm like, let's just move this to a Google doc because it is necessarily better for, or it's, it is perceived as better for collaboration. And that's really where they got their big start. That was probably a more obvious thing. The thing that I thought was utterly brilliant that they did it, Very, very early stages was if someone sent you any kind of Office doc, you could still open it. Even though they didn't do full conversions, you could see the document, you could see what like Excel spreadsheet. They didn't have sheets yet. They would still open it and show it to you. They didn't fully convert the Word doc into a Google Doc or they gave you the option eventually to do that. But that, when I saw that, I literally said, Oh, this is so good. This is this is the first time I saw the possibility of the chink in the office armor. And because they did. That one specific thing is for transitioning anyone that has legacy document assets. That's the single most important thing. And Google did that exceptionally right.
0: And does that translate into other, other areas? Like, have you seen that play get run outside of product? You know, productivity apps? Yes,
1: I see that play all the time. What are the common products that are used to do this today? And can we just make it easy to suck it in? So right now, one of our companies, Sync Computing, they're working with Databricks and they're like, hey, we just you just do a couple of clicks and we suck in your entire workflow. You don't need to do anything else. We're just going to make it super easy for the work you've already done to be moved into our world. So I, I do see that integration play as is hyper necessary in most categories.
0: That's so interesting. And um did you ever get to meet Gates or work with him at all? I did.
1: <laughs> I did when we wa- when we launched again. Dating myself, Office ninety five. He we had him come to our tent and and do something. So I actually had to direct him and make sure that he had every his whole right, Because you're, the, you're the marketing person, right? I was the product marketing person. That was I was in charge of this launch and just making sure that he showed up. That he knew exactly what to do, and uh, it's so it was so nerve wracking for any of us. Whenever we had to do anything with Bill, because he was famously opinionated and uh, not terribly patient with anything that he perceived as being like, hey, is this not going exactly as I wanted it to go? And so you just wanted to make sure everything was going right for when Bill was around and he had all the information and that he thought what you were doing was smart because he had very low tolerance for anything that wasn't.
0: (laughs) So speaking of smart people... Uh, did you go, you went straight from Microsoft to Netscape?
1: I did.
0: Okay. So Netscape, uh, and, and then presumably straight from there to Loudcloud. cloud. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, talk a little bit about those years, Netscape, the dawn of the internet. Uh, and for people who have been listening to daily bolster, we did have Greg Sands on, uh, in season one, talk a little bit about Netscape, but, um, what was it like there and Loudcloud, cloud where you worked and Greg did not work.
1: Yeah, well, I would say for me going from Microsoft to Netscape, which was the epicenter of the the change, the, the internet change that was happening to the whole world.
0: It must have been night and day. I mean, you went from one it of the largest technology companies in the world to how many people were at Netscape when you were there?
1: There were uh, about, I want to say 600 when I started there, or my employee number was 600 something. I don't know if there right. were actually that many people there, but it, was, it went from totally disciplined approach to going to market to barely manage chaos. And within my first week, I thought, did I just make the biggest mistake of my life? This place is total chaos, at least my perception compared to Microsoft. But our our CEO at the time, Jim Barksdale, came in and he talked to everyone because everyone was just working like crazy because there was so much to to make the Internet happen. And he came in and the very first thing he did was thank all of us for all of our work. And I'd never heard that before the entire time I'd worked at Microsoft. Bill, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer did not lead with thank you. And I was like, oh, my God, Like they're like treating us as humans and, and they're being grateful and acknowledging the work. And that made me think, oh, I really def- definitely made the right decision because now I'm seeing a different way of being, which is to acknowledge the change that your employees are are enabling and and saying thank you. And he started with the employees, he said a little something about what was happening to the company and he finished with the employees and I was like, "Oh my god, that is leadership." So, well, and he was crazy. not a he was not a startup guy, right? He worked no, at Oh, he FedEx came from FedEx. Right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. He came from FedEx and that's why actually why they brought him. They're like, "We want someone that knows how to like get the trains out on time because, right. again, barely managed chaos. They needed somebody who everyone would believe and and listen to and he was Jim Barksdale was phenomenal. I learned so much watching him work.
0: Yeah, I mean he's he is the font of many, many, many great sayings. Yes. Uh, so actually, I when Greg was on, I asked him about his favorite. Um, so let me ask you, what is your favorite, Jim Barksdale?
1: My favorite Jim Barksdale, and I don't remember if Greg said this or not, was if uh, all problems look like snakes. If you see a snake, kill it. If a snake is dead, let it let leave it alone. Um, but again, all problems look like snakes. So it was kind of this, like, like you got, to take care of problems, but you don't always necessarily recognize them. And I always, and that was always a good one. Like we'd be in meetings and someone would bring up something that we'd already made a decision on and people would literally go dead snake, dead snake.
0: (laughs) Actually, I think the one Greg, uh, used, which I'm not going to get quite right. is like, who, who wins when the alligator wrestles the bear or something like that. Right. Right, It it depends on whose home territory it's on.
1: Right. Yes. That's another good one.
0: Um, So when you were there, 600 people and Jim Barstow was already there. What what was Mark Andreessen's role at that point? And was Ben, Ben must've been there.
1: Ben was there. Ben was a product manager. So he was on the product management floor with the rest of us. And Mark, I can't remember exactly what his role was at that point. He was either the CTO or he was a very senior executive. Right. And I think they were trying to figure out how do we carve out an operational space for this genius, Mark Andreessen? And I think Mark was also, I mean, Mark and I, were, I think we were the same age at that time. And he was trying to figure out, he'd never been in a company before. He'd only been in academia. Right. And he was trying to figure out how, to, how do I guide this thing that got created and still bring some of that magic? And so in the beginning, I actually had... I still remember, I'm like, well, do I dare send this email to Mark Andreessen because I was observing something that I thought was important to call attention to. And I was like, why not? I'll just do it. I sent him an email and he wrote back immediately saying, let's have, let's meet. And so in the beginning, I had a lot of conversations with Mark, just sharing things that I had learned at Microsoft. He thought that there was a lot that he could learn from that. And, but he was also, I'd say, my observation of Mark as a human was, the one of the most voracious learners I have ever seen. His ability to consume books and the rate at which he could consume was unlike any I'd ever seen before. So in the end,
0: what's your analysis of what happened to Netscape? So, you know, you you talk a lot in your book, Loved, and we'll come back and talk about that more in a little bit, but you talk a lot about how it's so important to attach your product to a trend that's bigger than yourself, right? I cannot think of a better example of that than Netscape. Netscape was the internet when the internet wave first wave was cresting Um, and there's no Netscape anymore.
1: Yeah. So Netscape was the browser. It wasn't the internet. And that was the fatal flaw was the brand was so associated with the browser that when Microsoft became ascendant with Internet Explorer, the perception of the company was driven entirely by the perception of how Netscape was doing in its browser market share. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter that most of our revenue came from the server servers, the
0: servers right? Yeah, fra-
1: yeah, like most of it. And Nets Net Center, which was the portal at the time, you know, the the Yahoo competitor, it was generating a tremendous amount of revenue. That stuff almost was irrelevant. The whole perception of the company and and its stock price was determined very much by the perception of where was it in the browser world and how was that going to determine the shape of Netscape and I don't think it could get out from under that narrative and that was a so that was a RAND problem but there was you know a lot in the product portfolio that contributed to that but it ultimately became this brand problem slash opportunity which is actually why AOL then wound up acquiring Netscape right. was it literally it looked at the brand ecosystem that it didn't have any affinity, that where they didn't own affinity already. And that overlapped 100% with the people who had affinity towards the Netscape brand. And so they're like, we want to acquire that brand and that audience. So that's what happened.
0: Um, and what happened to the server business? Did AOL, AOL took it? It
1: moved and over and to Sun. Moved, moved over to, to sun, sun, right. Yeah.
0: And did that ever turn into anything material for Sun? That's a good
1: question that I don't know the
0: answer yeah. to. <laughs> Uh, Or maybe
1: I did was, and I forgot, but I know people stay there for many, many years.
0: All right. So Netscape and then Loud Cloud. Yeah. that.
1: Yeah. That was, so Ben Horowitz was very much the yin to Mark Andreessen's yang. Like Mark has a spectacular brain, but Ben has the ability to understand it. And also then to translate that into being an executive and operationalizing it. And so this was the ultimate in that, where it was like they were going to co-found this and Ben was going to be the CEO. And I loved Ben. I thought he was one of the most extraordinary leaders I'd ever worked with because he's simultaneously technically utterly brilliant, but he also has the EQ, which most people don't know about him. He has unbelievable EQ his capacity as a human being is truly extraordinary but he presents very much as a like a technical guy and, and so you just don't know how much richness is underneath that so i would follow ben anywhere and so i was like okay great let's let's go be part of this cloud cloud adventure and at the time when they started it it wasn't just about being what aws and all the cloud services are today that was the original vision of cloud cloud it was a little too far ahead of its time But the thing that got me to go there was Ben saying, we want to create the next great company of Silicon Valley. The culture, the people part, like he wanted everyone to be committed to perpetual learning. And that's what got me to go there because I was like, well, I want to, I want to help with that. I want in on that. (laughs) I want in on that because I, for me, I was less wedded to any particular technology and I really cared a lot about the kind of company people were trying to put on the planet. So that, that's what got me.
0: So, uh, you know, obviously Ben's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, um, I, you know, is, is, I, is at the head of the list of books that every founder should read more than once. Yes. Um, when you read that, or when you read that when it first came out, did you feel like, yeah, I lived that, I lived that book? Like was it? Were there things in it that that were things you didn't know, or were things that there were things in it that Ben had sort of distilled learnings from afterwards that you were like, oh, that's a really interesting take on it, or did you just read it and feel like, yep, I just saw three years of my life uh, pass before my eyes?
1: I did feel very much like that was that was me being able to read all of the things that I saw and observed in Ben's mind with him sharing his CEO narrative of it, and I'd say the things that I learned. Like, I don't think I observed Ben feeling embattled, but I didn't know how much internally, how painful that was for him because he, he, I mean, you could tell that he was, that was, it was hard, (laughs) but uh, you know, I, what I love about that book very specifically and why it is the must read is it is rare for a CEO to be, to have the capacity to remember their feelings, their thoughts, and be very vulnerable with that. And I think that's what's so unique about, Ben's narrative. And those, those are some of the things that i would seen all of this, but then I was like, oh, and so this is what he was thinking. And he has a very unique ability to articulate the the human lessons that are essential, and then communicated about it in an extremely effective way. But there's actually a chapter in there that is specifically about me. And, oh, now, and I have, I, now I have to go but it was a, really? when it was a blog post <laughs> and, and and so it became a, a book and so he he you know brushed up a lot of that old stuff but way back when he did the original blog posts um I had written him this letter just saying like thank you so much for letting me have the lot of experience and I and I reflected on like mistakes that I had made and thanked him and just thanked him for giving me that opportunity and right after that the very next blog post he posted like, what happens when you need to do it, demote a friend? <laughs> and I was like, that's my story right there. <laughs> and, and it was the only time like he, and the reason why I was like, I'm pretty sure this is about me is he very assiduously always used she pronouns in his work. So mm. to promote women. And it was the only time that he used he pronouns in a blog post, and I'm like, because uh, he doesn't want me to think it's about me. But I'm pretty sure that I was definitely an inspiration for that. We'll just put it, leave it at that. But it was. He's like, you want to bring your your closest friends and the people you trust the most when you first start a company. But then the company happens, and that person that you first brought on that you love and you trust is not necessarily the right person for that role. And what do you do? And then he does does a tremendous job of identifying where all the human things that you need to recognize are going on for that person again. EQ off the charts. And, uh, and he did all of those things with me.
0: Well, for anyone listening who has not read that book yet, and I hope there is no one, you should go read that book.
1: (laughs) Certainly no CEO or founder. That's it is must, must read for, for all of those.
0: Uh, all right. So after LoudCloud, uh, did you work full-time at Silicon Valley Product Group for a while before Costanoa, or am I missing? I
1: did. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, and full, I'll put full-time loosely in the sense that I it was the primary thing that I was doing, but I was also simultaneously figuring out what my teaching at UC Berkeley would look like. And the very first, I think it was two years I, I taught for an entire semester, and so we were mm. was figuring that balance out. How much is right. SVPG? How much is teaching? Do I want to lean more into teaching at Berkeley for the engineering graduate school? And so was figuring all that out.
0: And uh, are you still doing some work for Marty and at Berkeley as well as Costa? Yes,
1: so a what, full plate. Yes, I have a very full plate. So I basically I teach I take teaching leave every year in the month of January hmm. to teach at Berkeley in the Graduate School of Engineering and our Fung Engineering Leadership Department. And this is a way of getting engineering leaders their sort of MBA equivalent without them having to have an MBA. And so we now have, so my marketing and product management class is now a one unit digestible thing that they take before they start the semester. And so it's super intense. And so I get it done and they get it done in this really short period of time. And then I go back to my full-time job at Costa Noa, And then for Silicon Valley product group, that is, I teach workshops twice a year. Obviously, I wrote the book, which was a big endeavor, but that—that that, that's kind of the side hustle. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. So, Silicon Valley Product Group, we hired at Return Path. We hired Marty. Yeah. Uh, at some point, I can't remember. I'm going to say it was around 2010, 2012, and uh, he did a, a bunch of work with us and really kind of transformed the way um, the way we thought about product management. Uh, and it, which I assume that that organization has done for countless companies.
1: Um,
0: and I'm not even sure I was aware at the time that, that he also did that for product marketing, but presumably, uh, you know, he had multiple practice areas.
1: Well, it, Marty's practice area is exclusively product. I'm the only person in, in Silicon Valley product group that focuses on product marketing. Oh, interesting. and what that looked like for a period of time, it was Marty did product. And then he brought in other people that did engineering, operations, design, and I did product marketing, but that didn't, that wasn't a sustainable model. And so it, it became just product with mm. me as always being, cause I was part of that original group. Right. I was always like, and we also do product marketing because it is super adjacent. And, and oftentimes the first question people say like, well, how are we actually going to bring this product to market? So it was really logical to keep it um, yeah, attached in some way. For sure.
0: And so that's a good segue to um, to your book. So your book, uh, which is called "Loved," and I don't have the subtitle at my at the top. How to
1: rethink marketing right. for
0: tech products. Rethinking marketing for tech products. So "Loved" is a great book. If anyone is listening and has not read it, it doesn't matter what job you have at a company. You could be the CEO, or you could be anybody. It is worth reading. Sure.
1: Thank you, Matt. <laughs> um, I,
0: the way I you know sort of explained the book to uh, to people who ask me is that. It is. Um, it's essentially an instruction manual for running product marketing, um, and and more. But that's sort of the the kernel of it. And um, so let me ask you a couple of questions. You know, from the book, but from from the your life's work um, that I think will be helpful for for founders and CEOs who are listening to this, because I think product marketing is a a little bit of a misunderstood function. Um, or at least a function that has lots of different um, incarnations. So in your mind, where how do you define product marketing? And where does it sit in an organization? Does it sit in product? Does it sit in marketing? Does it depend? Is it its own thing?
1: Yes, product marketing is often misunderstood. But it is practiced differently in every single company. So like you can't blame anybody. And that is also why the answer to where should it report is somewhat, it depends. It depends on who the leaders are, whether they're not able to take advantage of the function for what it can do. It depends on what problems you're trying to overcorrect within the market. Are you trying to shape and prepare the market more? Or are you trying to, like marketing has just become amplification and enabling of sales and it's not really well attached to what's happening in product, in which case you might need to move it deeper closer to product. So it kind of depends on the market problem that you're trying to solve. And I did write the book precisely for the reason you described, which is a lot of product marketing, there's the function and the role within the company, but then there's the discipline and how it must be practiced, which actually involves product and the entire go-to-market machinery. So product marketing can't occur without a really deep partnership with all of those other functions. And some of the best ideas might actually come from those other functions in that collaboration. And so I really, I wanted way more people to understand its power and that it is for most tech companies, it is really the foundation upon which you build everything else.
0: So is there a model for a product marketing leader that makes sense? Like must a technology company have a very senior product marketing leader Is it okay to have a more junior one if you have a strong head of marketing or a strong head of product? Um, And how do you recommend that CEOs engage with product marketing?
1: So this is one where the answer does depend somewhat on stage. So if you're an early stage company, I don't think you can get strong product marketing with less than a director level of experience. This person just needs to have seen enough to be able to recognize patterns quickly and know how to problem solve. So it's kind of like director level and above is really what you need at those Mm -hmm. early stages because they're your generalist and they're going to be doing a lot of fast laps as the company is figuring out product market fit and where do we need to turn the dials? So that's true at the early stages. At the later stages it is actually a little more sophisticated because you are let's say you have product market fit you've been very successful and now you brought up the the classic example is we have one product that's very successful now we've acquired in or we've built in these others and now it's a more of a full featured product line and we're going to create suites how do we bring that to market and is it just a pricing and packaging exercise or do we actually shape how the world thinks about why they need to think about it from a platform perspective And that is product marketing. It's much more sophisticated and it's much more market shaping than it is talking about the product. You have to talk about the product in the shape that you're creating inside the market. That's why positioning work is so essential. And it's a much longer term game. So you do have to have someone that is senior enough, strategic enough, and strong enough to be able to recognize and see the work that must be done across all parts of the company. Some of it is working with sales. Some of it's working with marketing. Some of it's working with product. So you need a senior enough person. I'd say it's hard at that juncture to do it with less than a VP's worth of experience, but that can be a VP of marketing that's very strong in product marketing that has a really capable director underneath them. There's not just one size fits all, but you do definitely need bench strength in understanding the discipline.
0: I'd love to ask you how you think uh, product marketing and even um, sort of product life cycles have changed over the last ten or twenty years. So um, you talk in your book about Jeffrey Moore, who I've read, you know, all of his books, um, and we did some consulting work with him years ago as well um, around his famous, you know, technology uh, technology adoption life cycle: visionaries to early adopters, the chasm, Main Street, whatever comes after Main Street, laggards. Um, it feels to me. Like the pace at which products move through the talc has increased tremendously. And, you know, the example that's sitting in front of all of us at the moment is uh, is ChatGPT, right? And and maybe the other large language models as well. But, you know, somehow something just had 100 million users. and yeah, well, didn't exist three months ago.
1: So here's what's crazy. ChatGPT had 100 million users in February and in June it has 1 billion. I will actually say that there there has never in my lifetime there has never been a technology that's been adopted that quickly. And I'd actually say the next most successful version of that is the iPhone which was rapidly adopted but if you actually look at its like look at that full life cycle that you described it, depending on where you draw the lines, it still fell in the seven to ten years of adoption for yeah. one of the most successful products of all time. Right. So I would argue, with this notable exception of ChatGPT, there is not that company or that companies or products travel through that technology adoption life cycle faster. It's that the sheer volume of companies attempting to go through that has gone up exponentially, and so that's why. When I look at that from a product marketing lens, I'm like, it's never been more important because you can't shorten that. There's just like humans operate a particular way, technology gets adopted in society and cultures in a particular way. And there's, we can speed some of the edges of it, but really, it, it just takes time. And, B2C usually the, goes to the first part of that curve really fast. And mm-hmm. then that next those next parts of the curve actually takes a really long time. And it's the inverse of that for B2B. You can spend years and years and years trying to really figure out those first first markets. And then you go public and all of a sudden you're accelerating through all the other ends of it. So very, very different for those two. But I think it's much more the sheer volume of companies that are going that are trying to get our attention and not so much that we actually get through those different phases faster.
0: So that just means there's more noise.
1: There's more noise, exactly. And
0: more and more noise every day, right? The world of startups, it's never been easier to start a company. It's never been cheaper to start a company. And the net of that is there are a bazillion startups running around out there.
1: Exactly. Well, that goes back to your first question, which is like, what's more important? Is it the vision or is it the market? And that's why I argue it's not your vision because P.S. There are a hundred other interesting companies that are talking about their very interesting vision and how disruptive they're going to be. And so you really have to align yourself with what is happening in market. What are people trying Mm -hmm. to do right now? So generative AI is not interesting in and of itself. Everyone's looking at what should I be doing in my job differently? How should I be taking advantage of it? And so that's the larger thing that you want to attach to.
0: Right. It's a, it's a class of technology that is a, a solution looking for problems.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And everybody wants, and everyone's asking themselves the question. Like I have this mom's group I'm a part of and, One of them does grant writing for, for lawyers. And she's like, oh yeah, I started using it to help me with my grant language. And for the emails that I'm sending out to people that I don't normally talk to. And she's like, it's been really helpful. And she was one of the first people I knew that was using it. And I was like, wow, she's taking advantage of it. (laughs) Then then who knows who else should be taking advantage of it, but it's a powerful tool.
0: So when you look forward five years, what do you think AI looks like? Or what do you think even just large language models, like what, what impact is that going to have on us?
1: Well, I think it's going to impact every single one of us in ways that we can't even anticipate now. I'd say the the biggest thing I see is the the shift in interfaces, a conversational-based interface, as opposed to buttons and menus, Mm -hmm. where I just ask the product to do things on my behalf in natural language. I know that's coming. I'm already starting to see that. And you see this actually with a lot of companies that are trying to use their product on behalf of the user. The thing that gets really tricky there is that's, from the technology perspective, it's not that it's not possible. It's that it's computationally very expensive. And how do you actually do all of this in the background so that it's hyper-performance? So that becomes the tech problem to solve. But that's, uh, I see that happening. And, and it's really exciting, I think. I'm looking forward to that, where I don't have to learn how to use all these different pieces of software. I can just say, oh, Bolster, can you just find me five candidates for this role in two weeks and make sure they meet these minimum thresholds and will accept this level of pay based on their past salaries. And it just goes and does the work for me.
0: Yeah, and by the way, we'll be happy to do that for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I look forward to it, Matt. And I hope I can just, and I won't even need to type it in. I'll be able to use an audio-based interface to do that. So that's the future that I see in the next five years.
0: All right. Um, my last question, or I may have a quick quick one to wrap up. But my last question is, uh, so you're now a partner at Costa Nova. Yeah. Uh, right? Tremendous early stage venture firm. Um, and uh, you're on... More, to know what
1: thanks you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're more on the operating side, right? What you all yeah. call builder ops team. So you spend time helping the portfolio, et cetera. Yeah. Um, are you also effectively the head of product marketing for the firm?
1: <laughs> uh, I am a major influencer. This is one where it is a collaboration. How does- it, 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 so if the product is primarily the investing team and where they choose to invest in the sectors that we think are important, and how we choose to invest and partner with our founders, if that's the primary product, right? Obviously, that team has a really strong point of view and say, right. and the shape that that takes. I spend a lot of time facilitating. How do how do we articulate that in a way that is not us talking VCEs to the venture ecosystem, but actually same. How, talking about ourselves in language that is more meaningful to founders in the founder ecosystem, which is what matters most.
0: And does the firm feel like that has worked in terms of differentiating it in terms of getting it in deals that might not otherwise have gotten in?
1: Yeah. I would say a huge adjustment we made last year, which was something we collaborated on was to choose to focus and not list off everything that we invested in, because we want it's a hard thing to do as an investor. Oh, there are all these areas that I think are interesting. And we made the explicit decision to just say, developer, data, fintech, period. Just those three, not a little like PS and these other things too, not cybersecurity, not Web3, not all these other things that not insure tech. Yes, we invest in those areas too, not verticalized SaaS, not uh, 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 verticalized implementations of AI, We'll presume that's built into data, but to just simplify it to those three was a huge, I'd say, multi years in the making decision. Mm-hmm. But it has been super clear for us in the market, clarifying for us in the market. It's increased our deal flow in all the areas that we care about. So it has absolutely worked as intended. Focus and simplification has clarified a market position that lets us stand out better.
0: Um, it's amazing to see a small investment firm taking the advice of uh uh you know given to technology companies every day
1: it works <laughs> it, ma- it matters like it, in any market it, yeah. it matters who simplifying and connecting yourself to what's relevant in the market yeah. makes all the difference
0: okay last question for you can you give one piece of advice what's your best piece of advice for the ceo who's listening to this who's working on scaling up her business
1: My best piece of advice is make sure you set aside time every week to reflect on what might you be doing differently or better the next week based on what you've learned. Because we're always doing stuff. We're always super busy. But are we picking our heads up and saying, did I learn what was necessary to learn this week and making sure that it's being applied? So these are all things that people will do naturally, but just doing that with great intention and regularity and putting the time box on it. So it's not like every quarter we read, see how we went. It's kind of like every every week. There's something we should have learned from this week that should change how we prioritize what we do next week. I think having that, that practice is... Um, leaves you really open to learning, but make sure that you're reflecting on that. Are you learning the right lessons?
0: I love that. Just put it on your calendar. Put it Friday yeah. afternoon, Saturday or Sunday, Monday morning.
1: I Whenever love- you're planning out your week. Did I learn when I needed to? i make sure I'm applying it.
0: Martina, thank you so much for joining me and chatting today. This is a great conversation. I know founders everywhere are going to benefit from this.
1: Oh, thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed it. It was really fun to reminisce with you.
0: Take care. Bye.